Well, welcome to The Professor and the Hack. It's episode 18, PBO. Um, Can we have a drink? <laughs> I've started. <laughs> 18. What is 18? It was a celebration. It's not quite 21, but hell, it's got to be legal age for something or other. So, yes, we're, we're going to do this one uh, intoxicated, I, I think. I never thought of this until this moment. We're really not quite into the politics yet, but... We're about to have this state dinner over in the US and, you know, journos and so forth will all be sliding we're over We're not there. about to have this Well, yeah, we're turning up to it. And yes. and yes, not us personally, but, you know, Scott Morrison will be invited. Apparently it's a, a big deal because I think the last Prime Minister was John Howard, wasn't in it? In 2006. And this was the big uh, farewell towards the end of George W. Bush. Thank you for coming into Iraq with us and every other mess that we've been in. Uh, and... And it was a big farewell to the Man of Steel, as George W. Mm. Bush called John Howard. Well, this now sounds a lot more highfalutin than where I was going with this. I was actually more just curious whether there were anyone in the media from Australia that would be going there who is over 18 but under 21 and therefore can't have a drink while they're there. Jeez, you get straight to the point. (laughs) The tough stuff. Actually, I'm interested in that state dinner because not only do we have the spectacle of they wear not black tie but white tie, do you mind? So it's white bow ties. Uh, But this is the first one Trump has given a state dinner since he's been in office except for one there's only been one and that's uh, Macron oh that's right so for some reason he did the love up with the the French PM who came from nowhere another guy not expected to win came from nowhere they've fallen out though haven't they they have of course um there's always this Unusual comp- complex relationship Trump. between... Well, yeah, but there's also a comp- complex relationship between the United States and France. Their first ally, let's not forget, because mm. when they were duking it out with the Brits way back in the day, the French were the first to uh, give the monkeys were. for them. But they do have an awkward relationship with uh, France. On and off. But there we go. Scott Morrison going to be number two. And Trump gave him that honour of, of course, that dinner at the G20 before he spoke to anyone else or had a dinner with anyone else. White tie. It'll be fun to watch. Uh Far more prosaically, though, our eyes are on our local community, in a sense, the Pacific Island Forum. Not a total, absolute train crash, but a reminder to us that we can't have our cake, that is to say, selling lots of coal and producing lots of those sorts of um, fossil fuel resources, and eat it if we want to also be friends with our nearest neighbours they're no longer buying that we're that close friends. Yeah, I thought that it was, as you say, you know, verging on a, a car crash in terms of the way that there was some slip-ups and no doubt we'll talk about them and also some of the hypocrisy that you just mentioned, Hugh, as well, undoubtedly. But I also think there's hypocrisy from the other side. Let me just play devil's advocate for a moment. Uh, we do see a lot of these Pacific Island nations happy to cosy up now to China as they try to expand their sphere of influence. And China is a big consumer of emissions and understandably so I would argue because they are developing and that's one of the reasons why they get more concessions under the various international agreements so I get it but I do think that there's a little bit of hypocrisy on that front too and and even New Zealand while I agree that Australia's climate change policy is bereft of detail to say the least and we could be doing more and it's not well crafted I think there's all sorts of issues there but New Zealand like to sort of ho-hum that they're going to get to zero emissions by 2050. But what they don't like to talk about is that on that definition, they exclude agricultural exports from that, which is about 40% of their export economy. So my my point is, I'm not defending Australia. For anyone listening, wanting to sort of throw something at the wall, I'm not defending the Morrison government's position on climate change and coal. But I am also just noting that perhaps one of the problems with criticisms that come from other nations about this 
is that they're not exactly in something other than a glass house themselves in some respect. Mind you, uh, they're on a glass house on a on a, a beach that's, that's awash sinking. with water. And, mm. and the evidence that's out there suggests that uh, despite there being some sedimentary uh, land, you know, there's some sediments that have turned up in Tuvalu, which has increased the land area. Everyone's very excited. These places aren't sinking. They're getting bigger. Um, even the report that came out with that says that this isn't to underplay the, the effect of rising seas on all kinds of things, including groundwater to, to Tuvalu, but to other places, to Kiribati, the Marshall Islands, the Maldives over in the Indian Ocean, uh, to Tokelau, and uh, there's a couple of others in there. They are at risk of becoming, on the evidence, uninhabitable by as soon as 2030. There are high tides coming to Kiribati, seasonal high tides, in the next few weeks, which will once again see water sloshing through uh, places where people live. Uh, there is an existential threat to these communities. Oh, absolutely. And surely they're entitled to make as much noise. They're required to make as much but noise as they can. Can I be practical about this? And I'm no climate change expert, so you know the premise is you can disregard almost everything I say on this. But looking at it just in a logical sense... I believe in climate change. I believe in the human effects on it as well. I'm a little bit unclear, though, about whether we can really stop it or turn it around, particularly in time for some of these island nations. Now, I'm not suggesting that you therefore throw your hands up and say, who cares? What I'm suggesting is, for me, you look at the expansion of India, China, other massive emitters. Yes, they will curb emissions in terms of per capita, with technology and renewables and all the rest of it, but through natural development of millions and millions of extra people each year getting more access to things like electricity and so forth as part of development, emissions will continue to rise, and we know that, which means that presumably, if the link is there, the seas will continue to rise as Mm. well. Here's my question. Wouldn't the commitment from Australia and other nations to these small South Pacific island nations under such threat be better directed at planning for this climate change and these rising seas, almost what the Dutch have done with the dikes, you know, doing some sort of South Pacific equivalent. Because I just don't see how even if the entire world did more to reduce its emissions in line with what activists would like, it's almost too late, isn't it, to, to be able to turn it around and save these countries under the dire threat that they're under? Well, I... You may be right, but of course one of the problems with that is is that the argument goes there's no need for us to do anything Which I don't agree because with. who knows? And then once it gets too far, you say, Well it's too late. So there's still no need for us to do anything. Uh if we want to try to keep global warming down to levels that are not totally catastrophic, we're going to have to do something, and that is going to involve a cost. I think people understand that. And what we're also understanding is that uh, too few parts of the world are interested in paying that cost. Uh, but the cost is being borne by people who will lose their um, their very nations, and and that's not a small thing for them, presumably. And, and I, think, I think we can walk and chew gum on this. I'm not suggesting do nothing to bring down emissions, just focus on trying to prepare for when it happens, you know, a la you know, build the dikes to deal with the rising oceans. I think it's both. But but I think for these nations under such threat, the, the, the ledger should be tilted perhaps more in planning for to deal with the catastrophe rather than trying to prevent it or stop it. But, yes, you, you walk and chew gum. The problem, I think, with Australia, of course, is that we seem to be suggesting neither, although we are giving them more aid. I know it comes out of the overall aid budget, so there's no 
increasing the overall quantum, but there is an increase of what was it, half a billion. Sure. So we give the them more aid, ones. but we we're unlikely to meet our emissions targets under Paris. The things that Scott Morrison says we'll do in a canter, and uh, the best offering from the National Party uh, leader is that uh, well, they can always come over here and pick our fruit. Wasn't that unfortunate? Uh, not 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 classy. But there you go. Um, let's have a look at some other stuff that's going on. Uh, there's a there's, there's a certainly a global slowdown taking place at the moment. We've now, you know, whether it's Britain, Japan, Germany, United States, China, Australia, all have a revised downwards growth. We're not in a recession state. Uh, most of the economists I've been talking to in this week think we probably won't go into recession, certainly not in Australia, although Germany and Britain may well go into mm. recession. It's very hard for Australia to go into recession with the way our economy is built unless... You know, China collapses, for example. That's right. And this comes to, again, the weirdly uh, bipolar nature of of where Australia is because in the same week as we have headlines, I make no judgment about this, that we need to be gearing up to see China as a potential uh, strategic threat to Australia and therefore we need to um, get much smarter about our defence forces. Uh, we might need to align ourselves much more closely militarily with the United States but also with India and Japan and other other nations who, who, who also feel themselves pressed by China, we see them on one level as an adversary, whereas on another level, we can't keep out of recession uh, if China decides that it's going to stop buying our stuff. Yeah, that, that is absolutely true. In a sense, it's out of the government's hands uh, if China decides to really get tougher in some of the trade war scenario and then if Australia gets dragged in on the US side, for example, or if they're unhappy about, you know, the comments writ large from the likes of Hasty and others in relation to that, those security issues and so forth. But you know what I find really interesting? Okay, let, I don't think China will do that for their own self-interested reason. China will do what they want to do for themselves, and then we are simply a passenger in that. China could announce a three-month moratorium on buying our iron ore. And then it's all over. And We're the markets here would crash through the floor. The budget would be dented, certainly it couldn't possibly retain any hopes of a surplus. But, but China's unlikely to do that. Let's, Unless they send signals. Yeah, well, and that could be enough, by the way. Sending signals could be enough to put the sort of jitters into the market that has an impact in and of itself. But you know what I love? We were talking about this before we started podcasting, but uh, is, is that a verb, podcasting? It is now. Okay. You've just made it one. Uh, we are talking about this... I don't know why politicians don't get called out more for this. On the one hand, they say, we will do everything we can to prevent Australia going into recession. And then the same politicians who say that will also say, we will do everything we can to maintain the budget surplus. Well, I hate to bring, this isn't even Economics 101. I think this is, I might have learned this in year 10 in the first class where I did economics. Literally, if you want to do everything you can to prevent Australia going into recession, by definition, fiscal stimulus, which threatens the budget surplus, is pretty much item one on that list. Item two is monetary policy, where you might bring down interest rates, but given they're already only at 1%, there's not a lot of room to move there. So when you hear a politician say, I will do everything I can to keep the surplus and I'll do everything I can to keep us out of recession, by definition, if you want to keep us out of recession and you're going to do everything you can, you are going to have to lose that surplus, particularly when it's wafer thin, when we're talking about a single-digit surplus anyway. So this sort of rhetoric tells me everything I need to know in a depressing way 
about what's wrong with modern politics. Don't you think, Hugh? Well, I mean, well, you, you, you can sat down with Josh Frydenberg this, this week. You've sat down with him, had a good yarn with him, and he says he thinks he's got the settings right. The tax cuts are there, the infrastructure spending, uh, that uh, interest rates are low, so monetary policy is, uh, is accommodative, I believe the phrase is. So he says the settings are right to keep us out of recession. Do you think he's going to have to uh, ditch the surplus, which... His, his golden bauble, he definitely wants to deliver that surplus, that, that the economy is so weak that he's going to have to do that to save us from recession. I, I think he's going to deliver the surplus. I think what will be more interesting is what happens in the following two or three years after that because I think he can get to the next surplus and that he can move the numbers around. But if it's a weak return to surplus, wafer thin, and the economy may not go into recession but it does continue to weaken and weaken significantly, then they're almost doing more damage to that economy if they don't then put follow-up surpluses at jeopardy by doing more fiscal stimulus. But the great accountancy trick, of course, is that infrastructure spending can, in many ways, be off budget. So they can stimulate the economy with potentially tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars of additional infrastructure spending and leave it off budget. So yeah, it impacts on government debt overall, but it doesn't actually sit there as an impact on the surplus because the surplus is technically still held because all of this extra money is allocated as being off budget. We haven't got time in this podcast to go into what dictates and determines what's on or off budget, but it's pretty easy I mean, to move uh, around. Sure. Another weakness in the budget surpluses looking out ahead is that if you look in the budget papers, their uh, forecasts are based on a, a rise in wages growth in their explanations, mm. particularly in the out years for continuing budget surpluses, which are not actually contained in the actual wage forecast. So there's a complete uh, contradiction. Well, the same thing goes with the forecast for what the actual growth rate will be in the out years. You know, we're, in the out years, so what we're talking about here is years three and four. Uh, years three and four growth forecasts or wage forecasts, whatever it might be, are based on the averages over the previous cycle, 25 years, whatever it might trend. be. The trend growth. Uh, and that has that is significantly higher than what the more recent years trend growth is, which is what other estimates are for where it goes, simply because we're in a, a low inflation environment at the moment. So this is why one of the reasons why governments never seem to get to their longer term forecasts, whether it's a surplus or a downing of the size of the deficit during the labour years, they never get there because when you get outside year one and two and you start hitting years three and four, voila, suddenly you're at unachievable growth rates which is making the economy look stronger than it actually is. Mm. And suggests that we're more fragile in the longer term or the medium to long term, uh, particularly sure. compared to more, more uh, uh, tax cuts for the rich that are coming up. Um, if you're listening to this and you're not absolutely gripped by uh, economics and budgetary arguments, uh, don't worry. We're going to take a, a, a very short break and come back with uh, some other juice from the political week mm -hmm. here on The Professor and the Hack. Hi, I'm Georgia Love. And I'm Shira Taft. And we are the hosts of The Reality Bite this season, of course, talking about all things The Bachelor. It's cocktails and roses. It's Matt Agnew, the astrophysicist, trying to find love amongst beautiful girls from Australia who are throwing themselves at him. And we're going to be talking about it every week. Watch The Bachelor 7.30 Wednesdays and Thursdays and catch us on The Reality Bite. And ask for a rose. Welcome back to The Professor and the Hack. Uh, with The Professor, Peter Van Onselen, and me, The Hack, Hugh Remington. Now, Peter, you've left 
Canberra just for a moment to nick into the New South Wales State Parliament, an important debate underway. What was it? Well, it was actually the the forum that I was attending was about religious freedom. It was an inaugural forum, so the first time they've done it, uh, and it was a bunch of religious leaders that were there to offer views on primarily the issue of how we have religious freedom law reform in this country because it's not just a federal issue which has been dominating the front pages and Christian Porter's dealing with the idea of a religious freedom act. It's also then a state issue depending on how states react to that. But, of course, the big goings on at the moment in the New South Wales Parliament, which is where I was, is the debate around abortion. Now, inevitably, as these religious leaders stood up one by one and offered views on religious freedom, they were dovetailing with the discussion around the New South Wales abortion laws. And interestingly, Fred Nile stood up at the end of this and let the audience know uh, that the upper house had just decided to delay any vote on the bill which had passed through the lower house, uh, which would decriminalise abortion, until September. And, of course, it received applause from the assembled guests. They were, you know, anti-abortion one and all, essentially, uh, amongst that crowd. But it was really interesting to go there, and I, I hadn't been to the state parliament since this issue had been brewing over the last few weeks. And there were protesters out the front, lots of religious figures inside, lots of interesting conversations on the side that you have as a journalist with some of the assembled politicians about it. But, I mean, I I don't mind a delaying of the bill. I mean, I, I think that New South Wales has waited long enough. For yeah, we should, we should point out if people are not in New South Wales that uh, New South Wales has laws still extant that uh, make it a criminal matter to have an abortion. I find it extraordinary. Now, I understand, including no doubt plenty of people that listen to this, I understand that a sizable proportion of the population take the view uh, that abortion is wrong, and they often do so for religious reasons. And their choice as an individual, therefore, would be not to do it, and that's up to them. But it is an undeniable reality in the Western world that almost universally in the Western world, terminations are if not legal, they are decriminalised. In Australia, New South Wales is the only state where they are in the criminal code. And this is a debate, firstly, about getting it out of the criminal code. Secondly, about how you then get it out of the criminal code. And that's really where my, my main point that I want to sort of quickly make on this is. The problem that conservatives, religious conservatives who are opposed to decriminalising abortion have is that they've tried to not only prevent too radical a reform, but they've refused to even take it out of the criminal code at all in New South Wales for a very long time, turning New South Wales in this issue into a laggard state, well behind where public opinion is. Even a lot of people who are uncomfortable about abortions don't think that you should charge a woman or a doctor who perform them as murderers. Not or that that's accomplices. happened for, for many no. years, but I do take the argument if it's on the books. It's technically on the books. It's on the books. But, and here's, in a sense, my point. If religious conservatives hadn't just said, well, it's not really enforced, so let's keep it there, that's the best way to go because we don't support terminations, That's if that's what they did, well, they're now, if you like, the unwitting people who caused where we're at here because a lot of people that are less strong on the issue but still have concerns aren't comfortable with what's been drafted in this member's bill and look, it may well change now because it's been deferred. But in a sense, I look at religious conservatives who haven't been willing to lead this debate from years gone by and make change but make very conservative change and be party to that, they are therefore the ones who can basically bear the blame 
for having something that's a little bit more full on than that that is now getting debated because we have states like South Australia, for example, where it's actually quite constrained what you can do around medical terminations. But at least there, conservatives were willing to come to the table, have the discussion, and they didn't get all that they wanted, but they avoided getting too radical a change. And if you let the years roll by, what happens is if you made this change 20 years ago, like some states did, then you get a much more moderate version because society hadn't moved along. And those states don't have an appetite when they've already decriminalised abortion to go further with how much is allowed. So conservatives, guess what? By trying to hold a fully rigid line for the last 20 years in this state of New South Wales, you have created a worse scenario for yourselves with what will ultimately get passed. Even if there are some amendments to it, it will be worse because society has moved on. And so I think conservatives need to remember this because a lot of them try to hold a line on various issues well, 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 and that's a, not what they should be doing. So there is a line on this. I, I, I agree with the Bill Clinton formula, which is that abortion should be safe, legal and rare. Uh, no one should celebrate abortions, but, but we know that they are a fact of life. They should be safe. They should be legal. And, and th- th- for the most part... Uh, in normal sexual encounters, there are means to avoid getting pregnant mm. and one should take the steps to ensure that that happens to the degree that one can. That, those are responsibilities individually that we, we've all got. But there is an issue there. And having spent a bit of time in India and having lived essentially in China where gender selection mm. in utero are enormously big things. Some have called it the genocide against girls because in India and in China, there is a preference culturally for boys. And uh, to the extent that that might happen culturally in parts of Australian life, it seems to me to be reasonable to try to uh, not import that as how, a practice. How do you, though? Because I've seen I that debate. To- totally how do you get it? do it? <laughs> how do you do it? Because if you happen to know the gender of your child, uh, you can't say, well, no one can terminate a girl child because... It may not be culturally linked at all. It may be you – know, these are terrible conversations. Mm. It's very hard to find the terms around that. And yet at the same time, it would be no advantage if the practice of gender selection through terminations uh, was to take hold See, in I, Australia. I, I mean I've got quite a personal story on this which relates to my now 12-year-old daughter. Um, but look, my, my premise is logically I'm actually – incredibly radical in support of support you know in support of a woman's right to choose would sure. be the way to put it I, I i go very full term on that if it's in her body it's her choice now i'm not i'm acknowledging from a public policy perspective nowhere goes as far as i do and i'm also acknowledging that you know i wouldn't have a high regard for someone who for no reason no good reason had such a late term abortion for no reason having who would do that though hmm. having said that uh, our position, we we had some, without going into the details, we had some real complications around our firstborn. And we were doing all the tests we could, going as late as we could to try to reduce the percentage risks that were being reported to us to be able to get a, a greener light to be able to proceed. But we were, in our views, our moral views, comfortable in having a termination if need be if the odds were going against us but what we were trying to do was go as long as we could to try to improve those odds by getting better scans more development to know if there was going to be a problem etc etc long story short we've now got a healthy entirely healthy 12 year old daughter bless her Mm. not that i'm religious however uh we were 
you know, line ball at various moments and we kept pushing and waiting and waiting and it was becoming, had it gone the other way, a far more serious thing for my wife to have gone through if it had come to that um, than it could have been if we'd made a snap decision earlier. And one of the doctors said to us, I asked him actually, I said, this is literally at about the five or six week, you know, like a, a, a very simple test that they can do determine that there was a risk factor and a very high risk factor. And it was, it was a super high risk factor at that point. And I said, what, what do most people do? And he literally said 90% of people terminate right now and start again because it's so early. And we're about to say, okay, I guess that's what you do because the risk factor was over two thirds, you know, and it was a very bad risk factor. But then I said, well, does that come down as we get more information? And he said, yeah, sure. You know, you, get to 12 weeks and the scan reduces it to 10%. You get to an amniocentesis where you have that needle yep. fluid injection or re, you know, pull out um, at anything over 17 weeks and then it gets dropped to less than 1%. And so there are all these moments. And then every we, we my wife and I talked about it and we decided, well, we're going to do that because we're going to find out. And if the numbers don't come down strong enough, then we will proceed with the termination. But if they do then great, we haven't had to go through a process and miss out on what we now know we would have missed out on. Mm. My point is it's complicated yeah. and it can get late and that's part of the debate in New South Wales. Uh, that's one of the reasons why there's this debate about 20 weeks versus 22 weeks. It's one of the reasons why all the nationals have come in on the side, by and large, of supporting the change and supporting, I think, 22 weeks rather than 20 because these amniocentesis can often get pushed right out and the later you leave them, the more accurate they get. And that was our conundrum. We were playing with a couple of weeks. And then that also, it's, it's horrendous for the woman because it increases the risks um, of, well, it increases the seriousness of the procedure if you do go down that path and, and how it gets performed. So, you know, the, I ultimately make this the woman's right to choose. I ultimately are on the side of the individual or the couple um, being able to make their own decisions. And I just, I feel like, often this debate becomes so heated black and white rather than each person's opportunity to sort of talk about what they think they do or don't need from the law. But at the moment, the law in New South Wales, at least we weren't in New South Wales when going through this, would be that uh, would be that it's a crime and it might not be technically enforced, but, but it's but still there. But it's, and also if you, if you have to make that choice, it's another, it's another sense of how lonely and griefful and isolated you feel at that moment oh, I can if you only think imagine. That the, the state runs against you as well. And we were talking about a scenario where, you know, as a married couple, what we were going through, you know, there's a myriad of other examples, obviously, that are, that are quite different and where it goes the other way. Uh, and I just think it being in the criminal code... Uh, yes, it's, it's got no place in the criminal no. code, no doubt about that. Um, thank you for that story. Let's look at the full arc of life because uh, a devout Catholic, a man known to, uh, to all of us who follow politics and very much love Tim Fisher as we speak here, mm. is, uh, we're told, gravely ill. And um, uh, I wonder what your reflections are on Tim Fisher. Well, I'm, I'm more interested in yours, actually, Hugh, because uh, you, you would have had a closer proximity to him, I think, over the years than me. I, I remember him from doing the Howard biography, but it was much more of an academic from afar look at him. Uh, so my very, so I've met him, but not yeah. very well. Well, let, let's catch up for the younger ones among you. Tim Fisher was a farm boy from uh, Lockhart in um, in the New South Wales River Arena, and, and uh, his first piece of a service for Australia was when he got the call up. He got the draft and went off to uh, Vietnam. 
Uh, he said he was happy to serve. A lot of those who got the, who got conscripted, they didn't necessarily all go kicking and screaming, and and um, uh, and he was one of those. He 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 was fatalistic about it and had that experience. Came back, went on the farm. Within two years, he was in the New South Wales Parliament. So he was quite young. Mm. He spent thirty years as a parliamentarian in New South Wales and in the federal poli- parliament. Entered Parliament in 1984, which was the year that... Uh, a lot of people wouldn't realise that he was in the state parliament yeah, before going yeah, into yeah, federal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for a long time. So when he got in there, he was quite seasoned. He always had this thing about him. Tim, he, he stumbled over his words. He seemed clumsy. He was. He seemed like a doofus. He always he stammered. He had his bush hat. And he played up this idiot, this thing of being a kind of essentially the bush idiot. <laughs> he was far more shrewd and crafty mm. than that. He was... Well, the gun law debate, I think, the was gun the law defining deba- moment for him. Without him, Howard wouldn't have... Absolutely. So he, he becomes the Deputy Prime Minister in 1996 to John Howard. Hanson as well. The, and, and Hanson's got in that year. Almost immediately there comes Port Arthur. And it was a tough enough decision for John Howard to go against his base and decide, yeah, we're going to go boots and all on gun reform, but so much tougher for Tim Fisher because he had no illusions about how this was going to go down in the National Party mm-hmm. heartland, and he was staunch. He stood with Howard. He said, no, this is the right thing to do. I wonder if we've got that kind of guts left in politics, to be perfectly honest today, to to really challenge your base on a core matter and say, no, you've got to hand back your guns. And Fisher stood with them. And in the in in early 1998, in the Queensland state elections, the gun issue was huge. And One Nation, with a whole bunch of people completely unrelated to politics, it just came in on a tide, 23% of the vote, uh, went to One Nation, the biggest vote in any state or territory election since Federation for a third party. And it looked like that was an appalling call by Tim Fisher. But he was a brilliant campaigner. I went on the Wombat Trail, as they call it, where your National Party leader just goes from... Yeah, expl- explain to- the Wombat Trail, because so- I had never heard of this until this last campaign, because I'd never covered an election the way that I do now for Channel 10. Yeah. Uh, t- t- tell listeners about the Wombat Well, tra- I mean, basically, it's the tradition of the National Party leadership is to get out to every town, to get out in the heartland. And it is gruelling. It is weeks of, of just doing three or four towns a day. And, uh, you know, meetings here, dinner, up in the first thing in the morning, off to the long drives or, or a flight or something else. And I joined him, you know, on a single day. We went from Albury to Dubbo, to uh, Toowoomba, to just uh, west of Ipswich hmm. in, uh, in, in Brisbane. in light plains. In and... light plains and, and driving between uh, Toowoomba and like hmm. that sort of stuff and country shows and these sorts of stuff. And Tim Fisher, there were two things about him. One was he would remember something about almost everyone he met. Oh, wow. And he, then he's quite John Howard-like in that sense. Yeah, well, and the thing, he said later on, he said he was a high-functioning autistic that he was autistic. And one of the things he had was this capacity to, you know, the minute he sat down with you, he'd ask you about yourself and something would, it could be the name of your wife and something would lodge in his head. And then for that point after, every time he saw you, he'd ask you about your wife by name or or if you played golf. He'd say, you know, how's your golf going? Is your handicap coming down? And I would see him walk through these country towns calling out to people across the other side, hey, Dave, how's your golf coming down? Or how's Rotary going? And they all thought it was the deputy prime minister knew their name and something about them. He was a oh, yeah, genius at that kind of campaigning. campaigning. And the rest of the time he'd be spending it with his dictaphone dictating letters that then be typed out to go to everybody in his electorate. Uh, you know, congratulations on your big, big pumpkin 
uh, at the at the something for you know fantastic. That's what we need in Australia is that kind of you know whatever skills at horticulture. Yours, Tim Fisher, and these things that we typed up. He'd sign them off, and everyone would have somewhere in their house a letter from a framed letter from the deputy prime minister. He was it's it's brilliant. At it's, that. it's I mean that's brilliant campaigning, particularly at that grassroots level, which is even more effective, I think, in, in regional areas than than in urban areas. Although urban MPs might want to try a little bit of it. Who knows? Maybe it cuts across. But it's interesting as well to me, just in a campaign professional sense, hearing how the Wombat Trail works, not having been on it. Because the two major party leaders, you know, it's incredibly controlled. They do one event, maybe two, but really one event a day because that's what they want the message to be because that's what goes out for the nightly news bulletins as the guaranteed main political package. Here's what's happening on the Labor side. Here's what's happening on the Liberal side. But obviously the primary purpose of the Wombat Trail is to get as much done as possible, to be active, local. You're really engaging with individual local Absolutely. Um, you know, newspapers or news bulletins. And so you want to do as much as you can because you've almost got your own coverage there. Yeah. And Labor don't have that centralised response to that. They're sort of scrambling in response, presumably. It, it just it, it adds a new interesting element for me to hear that uh, and to know how well, they do it. You know, all politics is theoretically local, but it's nowhere is it more local than in the bush. Yep. And, uh, and Tim Fisher, uh, we wish him and his family well uh, in what seems to be a, a struggle. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and Tim, if you're listening to this as I'm... I hope you are. Um, we admire you and the extraordinary way you went about your business for 30 years. His role in, in the downfall of One Nation, and I say that as a compliment, um, is pretty important. In the first coming of the One Nation. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I know they came back, but the One Nation really did threaten to not only gobble up the nationals in regional areas, but to gobble up the coalition as it was then in Queensland altogether and certainly to gobble up John Howard's government uh, if their preferences didn't go the right way and depending on how their support went. And I don't know that John Howard on his own could have quashed the popularity of One Nation, particularly in those regional areas, but someone like a Tim Fisher uh, was earthy enough to be believed uh, by people and you know, your sort of stories about how he campaigns helps explain that. I don't know that, and this is not a criticism, but I'm not sure that, you know, your John Anderson, your more polished John Anderson style, or or even Michael McCormick, not gaffes aside, uh, would necessarily have been able to do the same thing. Barnaby Joyce is, <laughs> and again, I, I mean this as a compliment, not a criticism. Barnaby Joyce has or had large elements of Tim Fisher, but then he missed other elements as well. He, he Joyce had the authenticity mm. that Tim Fisher had, the accessibility to the ordinary man and woman at his height that Tim Fisher had. Um, what he didn't have was Tim Fisher's judgment. Mm. And on a certain level, uh, and I don't mind Barnaby Joyce on a personal level, but uh, on a certain level he he just lacked the courtesies. There was something old world in the courtesies of Tim Fisher and in the bush that worked from very well. Yep. But look, we're, we're out of time for now. Um, PBO, all the best. We'll talk to you soon. On episode 19. <laughs> when the drinks flow free. <laughs> Listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not try some of the other 10 Speaks podcasts we have available? AFL from a Western Australian perspective in the Western Front with Tim Gossage and Lockie Ree. Georgia Love and Shura Taft talk all things The Bachelor in The Reality Bite. 
and Barry Dubois' new podcast, Hammer at Home. Search for these titles in your podcast player of choice.